This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day, welcome to episode 27 of AFF On Air and the first episode for 2020. It is Saturday the 11th of January and I'm your host Matt Graham. I hope you had a nice break over Christmas and New Year. In this special episode on long-distance train travel, AFF member KLM597 joins me to discuss his recent trip on the Indian Pacific from Perth to Sydney. That's coming up later in the episode, but first, here's what's making news in the world of airlines and frequent flyer points this fortnight. And the Qantas and Virgin Australia groups have both announced packages to support the recovery effort from the devastating bushfires that are tearing through Australia right now. Qantas has pledged a million dollar cash donation, as well as free travel for firefighters and equipment. The airline group is also encouraging its customers to donate by giving frequent flyers the opportunity to donate their points and collecting cash donations from passengers at the airports. Meanwhile, Virgin Australia is waiving change fees for passengers whose travel plans are affected by the bushfires, as well as providing discounted airfares to emergency service organisations and free cargo space, as well as extra baggage allowance to be used for transporting firefighting equipment and materials. Virgin is also matching all employee donations to the Salvation Army up to $250,000 and providing four weeks of paid leave to Virgin employees who are volunteer firefighters. Some overseas airlines have also joined in with United, for example, pledging to match up to $50,000 in donations from its Mileage Plus members and offering frequent flyers free miles if they donate over a certain amount to the cause. In lighter news, Qantas has now signed up for TSA PreCheck in the United States. Eligible passengers who are registered for TSA PreCheck can now use the faster uh, security queues and enjoy a faster experience when passing through US airports when flying with Qantas. Unfortunately, TSA PreCheck is not currently available to Australian citizens, although there are reports that Australian passport holders could soon be eligible to apply for global entry, along with passport holders from around 10 other countries, um, and US citizens, of course, uh, which includes expedited immigration clearance into the USA, as well as TSA PreCheck. That will be good news for frequent travellers to the United States if that ever eventuates. Qantas has quietly increased the fees you'll have to pay when making or changing a booking. Among the increases, you'll now pay $77 or 7,700 Qantas points for reward bookings to make a booking via the uh, the Qantas contact center, which is up from $70 or 6,000 points. This is despite the service from the Qantas call centers now being among the worst it has ever been with long wait times and inexperienced staff. Qantas has also increased the maximum credit card surcharge applied per ticket from $11 to $22 for domestic and trans-Tasman bookings and from $70 to $120 for other international tickets. You can avoid paying credit card fees when booking with Qantas by paying with Poly or BPay. However, this is still not an option when making a classic flight reward booking, uh, which Qantas still charges a credit card surcharge for despite there being no other payment options available. Uh, You can also avoid paying the credit card surcharge by using a Qantas gift voucher as long as you're booking a one-way or return paid Qantas flight that originates in Australia. 
With the arrival of the new year, some negative changes have unfortunately been rolled out to the way status is earned in a few different programs, including the United Mileage Plus and the Lufthansa Miles and More frequent flyer programs. Meanwhile, United Airlines has relaunched its popular Premier Status Match Challenge program for 2020, offering three months of free United and Star Alliance status and a fast track to retaining that status for longer. Under United's new Status Match program, you have 90 days to take six United-operated flights and spend at least $2,000 before tax in doing so uh, to complete a Gold Status Challenge. And to complete a Platinum Challenge on United, you now need to take 10 United flights and spend at least $3,000 before taxes on United. That's uh, significantly more difficult to achieve than the previous challenge, so if you are looking for a Star Alliance status match, you might consider the Turkish Airlines offer instead. Virgin Australia has replaced its hot lunch service in business class with smaller cold snacks such as salads and sandwiches in what would appear to be a cost-cutting measure. The airline says it's simply responding to customer feedback from passengers that wanted lighter meal options at lunchtime. But frequent flyers that have experienced Virgin's new lighter business class lunch service say they were left feeling hungry and disappointed. If you're buying a business class ticket on Virgin Australia and you don't want to get off feeling hungry, the flights to avoid are domestic flights departing between 11.30am and 1.30pm. Meanwhile, Velocity Frequent Flyer has increased the carrier charges applicable when redeeming Velocity points for Virgin Australia flights this week. The changes were announced last October and you'll now pay a minimum of $10 in carrier charges for every Virgin Australia reward flight with the maximum amount being $230 for one-way business class flights to or from Los Angeles. In more bad news for Velocity members, Skybus will no longer be giving out Velocity points on bus services to and from Melbourne and Gold Coast airports from the end of this month. Currently, you can earn 100 Velocity points for a one-way Skybus ticket or 250 points for a return trip. Qantas will operate Airbus A330s on the Melbourne to Perth legs of its QF9 and QF10 services which run from Melbourne to London Heathrow via Perth, uh, replacing the Boeing 7879 Dreamliners on the Melbourne to Perth leg. And this will apply every Tuesday starting from the 11th of February 2020. Because the Airbus A330 doesn't have a premium economy cabin, passengers booked in premium economy between Melbourne and London will be accommodated in business class on the domestic sector between Melbourne and Perth, which is quite a nice upgrade actually. Meanwhile, Qantas has announced it is adjusting its flight paths on flights between Perth and London to avoid Iraq and Iran airspace until further notice. It follows increased tensions in the region and the crash of Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 shortly after takeoff from Tehran last Wednesday. The Qantas diversion is adding around 40 to 50 minutes to the flight time of QF9 from Perth to London, which is also currently taking off with a reduced number of economy class passengers so that more fuel can be carried. The return flight QF10 from London to Perth is still able to take a full passenger load. And Virgin Australia has signed an interline agreement with the Lufthansa Group. This will enable passengers to fly with Virgin Australia to Los Angeles, Hong Kong or Tokyo, and then continue their journey to Europe with Lufthansa, Swiss or Austrian airlines on a single ticket. And this could be particularly useful if you're looking to book around the world ticket.
That's what's making news this fortnight. For regular news updates and deals, make sure you've subscribed to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette or follow us on Facebook. While many of us enjoy flying, there's also something quite nice, perhaps even romantic, about long-distance train journeys. Perhaps the most famous uh, train trip in the world would be the Orient Express, which was made famous by, of course, the Agatha Christie novel and the subsequent movies. Um, Now, the Orient Express has been operating since 1883, and it originally connected Paris with Istanbul, which was then called Constantinople. The original Orient Express no longer exists, but there is still a train uh, called the Venice Simplon Orient Express, which runs from London to Venice via Paris during the summer. Now, a ticket on that train will cost you over $3,000 one way, but it is the epitome of luxury train travel. Another famous train journey is, of course, the Trans-Siberian Railway connecting Vladivostok in the far east of Russia with Moscow in the west of the country, There's also an option to start your journey in Beijing, China, traveling through Mongolia, and then joining the line to Moscow in the Russian city of Ulan Uda, where you'll happen to find a huge statue of the head of former Soviet leader Vladimir Lenin. Uh, Now, depending on the route you choose to take, the Trans-Siberian Railway takes around a week to complete, and that's, of course, without stopping along the way. So if you wanted to take that uh, trip and enjoy the full experience, you'd want to probably allow a few weeks during the Northern Hemisphere summer to do that properly. Uh, There are plenty of other great train journeys in the world, of course, like the famous Rocky Mountaineer in Canada, or there's the Eastern and Oriental Express between Singapore and Bangkok. A few years ago, I, I did travel by train from Bangkok to Singapore, although not with the luxury um, Eastern and Orient Express, which costs well over $3,000 for a one-way ticket. Um, instead, I did that trip with local trains, and uh, the ticket price all up was around about $50, so significantly better value there. And along the way uh, from Bangkok to Singapore, I had stops along um, in Penang and Kuala Lumpur, Uh, where I stopped overnight in both of those places. And um, it was quite a nice trip. The journey from Bangkok to Penang took a bit over 24 hours, but it was quite comfortable in a sleeper car and there was food served on the train. And uh, the other two legs were quite comfortable on daytime trains. In general, unfortunately, Australia doesn't uh, quite have the great rail infrastructure that we see in uh, places overseas like in Europe or Japan or China. It always amazes me how efficient those high-speed trains are overseas. I mean, you can even take a Eurostar train underneath the English Channel, getting from London to Paris in just over two hours. I had to laugh when I was uh, once on a train in Germany, and they made an announcement apologizing for the delay because of speed restrictions that meant that we had to slow down to 180 kilometers an hour. I mean, if any train in Australia went 180 kilometers an hour, that would just be amazing. Um, But in Australia, there are a few interstate train services, like New South Wales Trainlink has three trains per day from Sydney to Canberra. It's two XPTs per day from Sydney to Melbourne and one per day to Brisbane. And they also have some other daily services from Sydney to Dubbo, Armidale, Moree, Grafton and Casino, and also weekly services to Griffith and Broken Hill. I used to travel quite a lot on New South Wales Trainlink services, particularly um, back and forth between Sydney and Canberra. And that trip takes... About an hour longer than driving, but at least it's a comfortable way to travel and you can see some nice scenery along the way. I did also take the overnight XPT train from uh, Melbourne to Sydney once in the sleeper car. 
Uh, now this trip costs around $270 for a sleeper berth and the trip takes about 11 hours leaving Southern Cross Station in Melbourne just before 8pm and then arriving in Sydney at 7am the next morning. Now a flight from Melbourne to Sydney is not only cheaper than that in almost all cases um, if you're going economy class but it only takes around an hour so the train is not exactly an efficient commuter service but um Nonetheless, there are some advantages to taking the train over flying. Like, for example, if you're working in the Melbourne CBD, instead of mucking around getting to the airport, going through security, waiting for your flight and all that kind of stuff, you can leave your office at 7 o'clock and then or, um, yeah, go straight to this train station in the middle of the city and be on the way on your way before 8 p.m. And then you you've travel through the night and arrive in the Sydney CBD right at 7 a.m., uh, now, this could uh, be especially useful if you're working in the two cities, but also if you're needing to travel to an intermediate station such as Goulburn or Mosvale, it's obviously then um, the time saving over uh, by flying is not quite as great. Um, and if you if you take the sleeper car, you can sleep on the train. You do get a life flat bed with bedding provided and um, obviously, and you also save on a hotel room. And the bed on the train is quite comfortable and you can get a reasonable sleep if you don't mind the rocking of the train. Although, um, keep in mind that the tracks between Melbourne and Sydney aren't in the best condition, so it can get a bit rough. But um, if you do book that, my tip would be to go for a bottom bunk if you can get one. Uh, there are showers on board. You share a bathroom and a shower between four people. Uh, so you can freshen up before you arrive, and they do give out amenity kits, a bit like if you're in business class on a on a flight. Uh, and there is an, a restaurant on board the train, so you can eat. Uh, dinner costs extra, but breakfast is included. Um, although that said, if you take the train, my advice will be to take the extra sleep rather than getting woken up for breakfast at 5.30 a.m., which is basically a piece of toast and orange juice. Now, obviously, you can't earn frequent flyer points or status credits for taking the train, but if you do travel regularly on New South Wales train link, it's worth mentioning that you can get a Discovery Pass, which basically gets you unlimited travel in the state of New South Wales, as well as to Brisbane, Melbourne, and Canberra, for a fixed price of $420 in economy class or $550 for first class, and that's for six months, so that's not a bad deal at all. Elsewhere in Australia, you've got the Tilt train up in Queensland, and there's the Overland train, which runs between Melbourne and Adelaide twice per week, although um, there is now also a seasonal um, service which runs in December and January between Melbourne, sorry, Adelaide and uh, Brisbane as well. Um, but in Australia, there are two uh, long-distance train trips in particular that are really famous. One of those is the GAN which starts its journey from the south of the country in Adelaide and travels right up through the middle of the country, stopping in Alice Springs and Catherine before reaching its final stop in Darwin. The other one is the Indian Pacific, which travels an epic 4,352 kilometres across Australia from Perth to Sydney over a period of four days. The trip departs Perth every Sunday and uh, there are various stops along the way. One of our Australian frequent flyer members, KLM597, travelled on the Indian Pacific from Perth to Sydney just last week, bringing in the new year somewhere between Broken Hill and Sydney along the way. And up next, he joins me on the podcast to tell me all about it. Hi, this is Clifford Reichland from the Australian Frequent Flyer. I know that many of you have already registered on our website, but for those of you who haven't, 
Do you know that as a registered member, you can fully participate in our discussion forums, send messages to other AFF members, access our services such as Flight Tracker for tracking your flights, and you see few advertisements. And the best part is that our basic membership is 100% free. To register, simply go to australianfrequentflyer.com.au slash register, choose your account type, and then register. Simple as that. Joining me now on the podcast is somebody who's just travelled by train from Perth to Sydney on the Indian Pacific. It's the AFF member KLM597, whose real name is Stuart. Welcome to the podcast, Stuart. And first of all, were there any special occasion or any particular reason that you decided to book this trip on the Indian Pacific? Uh, hi, Matt. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, wasn't really too much of a special occasion other than just trying to sort of fill the time that we all have between Christmas and New Year. And compared to some of the accommodation costs we had in other cities around the place, it was actually not too bad. Yeah, so the Indian Pacific has three different classes of service. There's the gold single class, gold twin class, and the platinum class. Which one did you book, Stuart? And if you don't mind me asking, how much was it? Uh, So I booked the gold single class. And from memory, I don't have the exact figure, but from memory, it was just over two grand. Um, If you booked the dual cabin gold service, I think it was... Per person, it ended up being about $1,800, so a little bit less if you have two people. Okay, so it's not exactly a budget option. I mean, it's about the cost of a full-priced business class flight from Perth to Sydney, but if I'm not mistaken, it is a bit of a luxury way to travel. So for that price, what does that actually include? Uh, So that essentially includes all meals and all drinks that you could possibly asked for that they have on the train. Um, They never asked for any sort of card or anything. If you asked for anything and they had it, they gave it to you. Okay, and the price also included off-train excursions? Yes, that's correct. So there were, usually there are three off-train excursions, uh, one in Kalgoorlie, one in Adelaide, uh, and sorry, four uh, off-train excursions, one in Adelaide, one in Kalgoorlie, one in Broken Hill, and one in the Blue Mountains. Okay, I'll ask you about those off-train excursions in a moment, but firstly, how did you find the facilities on board? What was it like in the uh, gold single cabin that you booked, and how do you think that compared to the other classes of travel? Uh, I was pretty happy with the gold service. Um, the Some of the carriages are older than others. Um, I think most of the gold service single cabins seem to be a lot newer. Um, in terms of actual sort of physical size. I've never flown international first class, but sort of similar to some of the suites we have on sort of Singapore Airlines. And then the toilets and shower facilities are separate. In the twin cabs, they had a, every cabin had its own toilet and shower. And there's also a restaurant and lounge on board, right? Yes. So the train's actually compartmentalized. Um, so for us, there were four uh, passenger cars per dining car and lounge car, which meant we only sort of interacted with the passengers and four other cars, and we didn't have to share one lounge car over the entire train. Oh, right. Yeah, I guess you'd be waiting quite a long time for dinner if you had to share one dining car with the whole train. 
Um, do you know roughly how many passengers there were in total on board the train? Uh, it was around 200, I believe, on our trip. And I do know the train length. It, for us, it was just under 800 meters, I believe. Wow. Okay. So yeah, quite a long train. And um, all right. So you started the trip in Perth on a Sunday morning. What was the boarding procedure like when you got to the train station over in Perth? Uh, there wasn't a whole lot to it. Uh, they recommended you got to the station so two hours prior to departure and then boarding started an hour prior to departure. There was absolutely no queue and it took about two seconds to check us in where we sort of received small boarding cards. Then on the platform while the train was still being uh, set up, there was live music and tea and coffee and a few snacks. And then right on nine o'clock, they asked us to board. Everyone walked up to their sort of respected cars, got set up for an hour. And then right on 10 o'clock, we pulled away. Oh, nice. That all sounds quite civilized, I must say. Um, did you get to choose your own berth or was that allocated to you? Uh, no. So we, there was, we looked it up online and there was no ability to choose online. So we didn't really think much until we rocked up and... They gave us uh, sort of exactly what we wanted sort of in the middle of the cabin on adjacent cars because um, I was traveling with others. So it worked out well for us. Oh, great. And what were the other passengers on board like? Were they mostly other Australians or were there a lot of overseas visitors or a lot of retirees or, you know, what kind of other passengers were you traveling with? We did ask the staff about this. Um, for our trip, I think it was around 50-50 Australian versus international visitors. Um and the staff did say that our, the crowd on our train was a little bit younger than usual. Um, definitely not like your typical flight. The average age was definitely sort of fairly old, but there were a few families traveling together, um, small families, not large families, and obviously quite a few retirees as well. Um, a lot of the international travelers were quite young. Um, There's sort of a couple from Germany and a couple from Russia as well, so sort of quite varied. Okay, that sounds like quite an interesting way to spend New Year's then. Yes, you are um, sort of, when you're in close quarters like that, you do have to sort of make friends with the people around you. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, so on the first day you travelled from Perth to Kalgoorlie. What happened when you got to Kalgoorlie? We arrived in Kalgoorlie around 9pm um, and we had sort of lanyards which had which um, excursion we were doing and we all walked onto a bus and then they sort of drove us around Kalgoorlie. Uh, in the lanyard respect and the bus respect, it did feel a bit like we were cruise passengers, sort of being sort of shuffled onto buses straight from the train. But obviously you're in the middle of Australia, so it definitely sort of was in counter to what you'd usually think with a cruise. Yeah, so it certainly is quite a different environment. How did it work uh at each of the stops, like were there multiple different off-train activities and how did it work with being able to choose an activity and being allocated into a group? Uh, usually at the start of every day um, or the day before, so one of the staff members would approach everyone and ask their preferred tours and book everyone in. Uh, there was no option in Kalgoorlie, but there were a few in Adelaide and Broken Hill and as far as I was aware, everyone got what they wanted. It was just sort of making sure the bus numbers were correct. And what did you get to see in Kalgoorlie? Uh, for Kalgoorlie, we went to the tourist mine where they had a small play about Kalgoorlie's history. And then we got to run around some of the large machinery they have there. 
And then they took us to the super pits, which was definitely the highlight. Um, and we were there around 10, 10.30 p.m. So it was quite a weird landscape just looking into this hole. Um, you couldn't really get a site uh, bearing in terms of how large the site was, but it definitely had an interesting atmosphere and was definitely worth it. Okay, so after Kalgoorlie, you've travelled through the night towards the Nullarbor Plain. Now, that was the first of three overnight legs of this trip. How did you find uh, being able to sleep on the train? Was it quite smooth or was it kind of like being shaken around with the with the movement of the train? Uh, it was a little rougher than we expected. Uh, I fell asleep before the train departed Kalgoorlie and then woke up about an hour later and sort of had this oh no realization and I think lots of other passengers did as well. Um, but I managed to fall back asleep and still got a solid sort of five, six hours sleep without ever falling off the bed or anything. So wasn't too bad, but it's nothing like a flight. Okay, so if someone's going to take this trip, they should be prepared for a bit of turbulence in the night, so to speak. Yeah, it's a different type of bouncing than up in the air, but it's, it's not a gentle rocking, but it's not severe turbulence that you get in the air. Okay, so on the second day, you've traveled through the Nullarbor Plain. What's it like traveling through hundreds of kilometers of just continuous straight track in the middle of the desert? It must feel a bit isolating, surely. Uh, yes, we didn't ever feel like we were missing when we weren't constantly looking out the window. Um, you no. do set it, get a, definitely get a idea of just how big the country is where you've been traveling, constantly moving for six hours and the landscape hasn't changed at all. Um, there was interesting to see every now and then there were a few cattle around, which I thought was interesting. So there were a few farms, um, but it definitely wasn't obvious that it was sort of agricultural land or anything. Yeah. So then on the third day, you arrived in the morning in Adelaide. What did you get up to over in Adelaide? Uh, so I did the Adelaide Oval tour. Um, there was also a city walking tour as well. Uh, and um, a third option, which has escaped me, but the Adelaide Oval was definitely fantastic. Uh, they gave us sort of a private tour around the whole facility, including uh, going down into the locker rooms and then up into the scoreboard as well, um, which I'd never got on any sort of stadium before. So it was definitely a worthwhile experience. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm a cricket fan, so and I love that old scoreboard in Adelaide Oval. It's definitely iconic, that one. Yes, yeah, you would have known a lot more of the names than I did. They um, There definitely were a few cricket fans. Some of it went over my head, but um, <laughs> the facilities definitely didn't. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. And did everyone that was on the trip go all the way through from Perth to Sydney or did some people get off and some join uh, when you're in Adelaide? So there were people hopping on and off in Adelaide um, and I believe as well in Broken Hill. I don't know if anyone did it, but they made an announcement that you could leave in Broken Hill. Um, so there were a few people that we spoke to only doing Perth to Adelaide and then also the same Adelaide to Sydney as well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've been to Broken Hill once and it was definitely interesting for a few days, but well, since the Indian Pacific only goes through once a week, I'm not sure that I'd want to spend a whole week there waiting for the next train. And no, no offense to anyone that's from Broken Hill. It's certainly a lovely place, but there's not a whole lot there, I don't think, to keep me occupied for a whole week. I believe there's also a once a week um, 
New South Wales Country Link train as well that serves Broken Hill. So actually has a few rail options. Ah, uh, yes, you are quite right, actually. Yeah, when I did that trip to Broken Hill, I did do it by train from Sydney on the New South Wales train link service, and it was fine. Quite a long trip, 14 hours during the day, but it was pretty good. So, yeah, I guess that is another option. Uh, now, speaking of Broken Hill, what was the off-train excursion when you got there? Again, there were three options, and I can only remember two of them. Uh, there was an art, regional art gallery um, that you could visit, as well as the drag show at one of the town's main hotels or pubs. Um, most people by far chose the drag tour, uh, drag show rather. Um, and it obviously made a lot of use of the history that Broken Hill has with um, a certain famous Australian movie. Oh, of course, yeah, Priscilla, um, the Queen it, of the Desert. Yes, yes. Um, and it was definitely sort of fun to sort of support the local pub and watch the show. Um, they did invite a few people up on stage, including myself. So if anyone was doing it, just be warned that there is a little bit of audience participation, but no harm done. Okay, great. And uh, so then that evening you set out uh, for the final leg towards Sydney. Uh, that happened just coincidentally to be New Year's Eve. Were there any celebrations on board to bring in the new year? There were a few decorations up in our cabin. Um, uh, as well as the lounge car. Other than that, um, they do have a singer on board who sort of rotates along the entire length of the train for the entire journey, um, who's also an entertainer as well. He hosted trivia um, on the first night. Uh, so we were lucky in our car that we had the entertainer from 11 p.m. till midnight or a bit after midnight, and quite a few other people from other parts of the train came down to our lounge car so to sort of ring in the new year um, with all the usual sort of classic Australian songs, everyone was singing along. So they did put that on quite well. Um, and the alcohol was flowing. Never heard of anyone running out of anything. So definitely a fun evening. Sounds great. And uh, then so normally on the fourth day, you'd have an off-train excursion in the Blue Mountains. But obviously this wasn't possible on your trip due to the bushfires. So... How did they get around that with the line being closed through the Blue Mountains? Uh, yes, they did warn us at the very start of the journey that um, the line was closed and it was probably going to stay closed by the time we got there. Other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of communication during the trip other than it's closed, we'll go around it um, and we'll get into Sydney a few hours later. I had opened, looked at a few rail maps earlier on in the trip, so I had an idea of what we were going to do, but we sort of went through parks, went south and then down uh, just north, joined the main line between Melbourne and Sydney and then came through that way via Yass, Gunning and Goulburn. Okay, so a bit of a detour then. Uh, did you arrive a bit late as a result of that? Uh, yes, we arrived just before 2pm, whereas usually uh, the train arrives around 11.30am in the morning if you don't do the... Uh, Blue Mountains tour and there was a woman actually on the train uh, like overheard the conversation she was trying to catch the 2 p.m train to Brisbane from Sydney um, as our train was pulling in I think she had about 20 minutes to make the connection and I never found out if she made it because she had luggage checked in um, I hope she did because otherwise it'd be quite a quite a wait for the next train up to Brisbane there only once a day oh my goodness that sounds really stressful yeah, it's quite devastating uh, what we've seen with the bushfires, not only in New South Wales, but around the country. Uh, did you see much evidence of those fires during your trip? 
it wasn't until the fourth day, as soon as we woke up, uh, everyone woke up to the smell of smoke and we were in sort of, I believe, the worst area just north of Canberra in terms of smoke at that time. Um, the cabins were okay, but when you walked between the carriages, uh, the smoke, you were definitely overcome with the smell of smoke. Uh, we didn't see too much evidence of actual bushfires until we got closer into Sydney, where there was a lot of backburning on along either side of the rail line. Uh, other than that, no direct observations. It was just the smoke. Okay. Uh, well, on a slightly lighter note, uh, how did it work with the meals that were served on board? Uh, so they try very much to be like a proper restaurant quality. Uh, it, there were two courses for breakfast, two courses for lunch, and three courses for dinner. Some days they did combined breakfast and lunch into a brunch service, depending on the day's activities. Um, we, a couple of hours or earlier in the day before every meal, uh, we, one of the staff members would come up and ask everyone for sort of a booking time for dinner because as the kitchen is relatively small and the dining car can't fit everyone, they stagger the sort of seating throughout a couple of hours. Uh, but we always got around the time that we want. There was never some crazy times. And what kind of food were they serving? Uh, there was definitely a lot of local Australian content. Uh, they did try and use as many local ingredients as to where the train was passing through at the time uh, during that meal time. Overall, we were pretty impressed with the food quality. Uh, there were a few meals where they were trying a little bit too hard, um, but usually everyone was very happy. Um, there were plenty of meat and also vegetarian options as well. Uh, so we never really had any complaints about it. All right, well, that sounds pretty good, and it sounds like I might need to add the Indian Pacific to my bucket list along with the Trans-Siberian Railway. So having taken it, do you think, Stuart, that the trip was worth it? Uh, I'd say it's worth doing uh, purely just to see that area of Australia. Not many people see the middle of the Nullarbor um, or go to regional Australia like Kalgoorlie and Broken Hill. Um, so it was definitely worth it for that. It also did feel a little bit like you were stepping back in time with sort of an old-fashioned rail journey. Um, carriages haven't really changed too much uh, in the last 50 years or even 70 or 80 years, so it did definitely feel like stepping back into another era in a good way. Wow, okay. Well, if you want to see some photos or read a bit more about Stuart's trip, he has written a trip report on AFF. The name of the trip report is A Transcontinental Send-Off to the Decade. And I'll link to that trip report in the episode notes for this podcast. Well, Stuart, also known as KLM597 on AFF, thank you so much for joining me on AFF On Air. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Matt. And yeah, thank you for having me on. Just while we're on the topic of train travel, I thought it would be worth mentioning a resource that I've found particularly helpful when planning train journeys. There's a great little website based in the UK called seat61.com. Some of you might already know it, uh, which is all about long distance train journeys and it covers many, many different parts of the world, including even Australia. Um, the website contains practical information on things like timetables, how to book tickets and what to expect with the facilities on board the train. And it's also great for a bit of travel inspiration. So if you're interested in train travel, definitely check that out. Well, thanks always to, as always to everyone that's left feedback and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, this fortnight, I wanted to give another uh, shout out to the AFF member Revenge who left 
this comment on the AFF on air discussion thread. And it says, uh, my, li- my wife was listening with me to the interview on your last podcast about status runs. She doesn't quite appreciate the concept of a status run as much as some of us addicted uh, frequent flyers, but she did raise a good point about traveling responsibly with regard to the environment. Sometimes travel is necessary. Sometimes a holiday is a great treat, but a status run can feel quite frivolous. We wondered whether you might like to cover in a future episode what the best methods are of traveling responsibly, offsetting carbon emissions and other strategies you and other frequent flyers take to reduce the impact of travel on the environment, especially in the light of the recent conditions in Australia. Uh, Now, thanks for that. And that is a very valid point. And uh, it is definitely something that I do hope to cover in a bit more detail in a future episode. Uh, To be perfectly honest with you, the environmental impact of uh, frequent air travel is something that troubles me, um, and especially with the current situation that we see in Australia. Um, Everyone's different, and I'm not here to say that anybody's travel choices are are right or wrong, but uh, personally, I don't travel anywhere just to earn status credits and then fly back on the next flight. Um, And with the amount of travel I've been doing over the last few years, I haven't needed to take a status run anyway, but if I was going to be booking a status run, I would always try and tie it in with something that I needed to do anyway, or perhaps turn it into a holiday and spend some time at the destination. Um, Now, one thing I have started to do is to offset my carbon emissions, and this is a practical thing that everyone can do to help at least a little bit to combat um, the impact of our air travel on the climate. Many airlines, uh, of course, now offer the ability to offset carbon emissions in the booking process, and it's usually only a few dollars per flight, so it's not an onerous ask at all. Um, Now, towards the end of last year, Qantas even started offering 10 points per dollar on carbon offsets, so... um, And also the airline will now match its customers' contributions. So there's really um, no excuse not to be doing that, I don't think. Um, Now, when you pay to offset your carbon emissions, the airline is effectively purchasing carbon credits from a reputable organization, which um, in Australia is endorsed by the National Carbon Offset Standard. Now, this has the effect of, uh, in theory at least, removing CO2 elsewhere in the world to compensate for your share of the carbon emissions produced from each flight. And the money from carbon credits can be invested in lots of different ways. For example, Qantas Future Planet partners with projects that aim to reduce uh, wildfires and produce and preserve rainforests. Uh, and different airlines have different projects that they work with. Uh, now, even if you're flying with an airline like Emirates that doesn't offer those carbon offsets, you can still reduce your personal impact on the environment by calculating your carbon footprint online. There are ways to do that. There are free websites that offer that service. And you can then purchase carbon credits from a reputable organization to compensate. And there's plenty of those um, available, which you can research online if you're interested. Uh, Some of you may have seen the report that came out of the UK last October, which recommended banning frequent flyer programs uh, since um, they can have the effect of encouraging unnecessary flying. Now, Obviously, I'm personally against that idea. I I think don't go after the frequent flyer points, but... uh, Perhaps they do have a little bit of a point. I mean, when you're offering shiny gold cards and rewards as a as an incentive to fly more, that might not be the greatest thing for the environment. So um, either way, I'm sure that that won't be the last we hear about um, that, that issue. If you have any thoughts on that, um, do let me know in the AFF on Air discussion thread. Um, I'll be interested to hear what you think. Well, that's just about it for another episode of AFF on Air. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. 
For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes where you'll also find a link to an AFF thread uh, where you can discuss anything from today's episode, ask me a question, or suggest a topic for discussion on a future episode of the podcast. Before I go, I wanted to quickly mention the AFF bushfire appeal. All of us at Australian Frequent Flyer are obviously saddened to see the devastating impact that the bushfires have had on large parts of our country. To recognise the generosity of those Australian Frequent Flyer members who have donated to the bushfire cause, we are offering any member who's donated $50 or more to any relevant charity um, of your choice that is um, in some way related to the bushfires um, until the 12th of January. We're offering complimentary AFF Silver membership for a month. You can also attend the next Frequent Flyer Solutions webinar for free, and that'll be on the 29th of January. Uh, and you can also get the a special AFF uh, Bushfire Appeal 2020 banner displayed under your handle uh, for this month as well. I've added some link a link in the episode notes which explains how you can participate and if you do participate, thank you very, very much for for supporting the cause and for your generosity. Well I'm Matt Graham and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, happy flying or happy train travel.